Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 23. And as Gabrielle shared, we're going to make our way into the first part of chapter 3. But first, we'll just read Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through 26. Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through 26. As you're turning there, I want to read to you from the Gospel of Mark, a tale of two Sabbaths. We're going to cover two Sabbath stories, what that means about Jesus and what that means for us. All right, verse 23, chapter 2, Gospel of Mark. It says, one Sabbath... Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. We can stop right there. This is the first section of a lengthy couple of stories about a Sabbath practice. I want to set this up, though, and frame it for what it, for what it is at the deepest level. This is Jesus showing up in the face of great human need to make a claim about himself to people. And he's doing that as he has been doing that with the voice of a critic in the room, the Pharisees. Now the voice of the critic changes over time. Back then it was the Pharisees. Today it might be our friends, it might be our coworkers, it might be our own thoughts. But this is Jesus showing up in the face of human need to make a claim about himself. And what are the human needs in this story? We see a couple. The first one is hunger. He's, I, I love, by the way, as an aside, the first verse in our text. One Sabbath, Jesus was walking through the grain fields with the disciples and they were eating heads of grain. I used to skip by passages like this as though they were just one-offs that uh, didn't really mean anything. Now I slow down on passages like that. This is awesome. Jesus and his disciples are walking through the fields. And he's e his disciples are hungry. I don't know if they were on a long journey. I don't know if they just got done with a weekend of ministry. I don't know if they've been encountering a lot of persecution or opposition or just some stuff that they've been facing, but whatever the case is, they're, they're really hungry. And it's the Sabbath. And they've been on a long journey. And like the disciples, we in this parking lot, we at home watching from afar, can understand basic human needs and limitations. We grow weak. We get hungry. We lack food sometimes. For others, we lack energy. Whatever the case may be, all of us can resonate with just basic human needs. For the disciples, it's hunger. Now, I want you to skip with me to chapter 3. We'll get to some of the details that we just read, but I want you to see another pattern in chapter 3. This is a different scene, same problem. Verse 1, it says, again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with the withered hand. Stop right there. Again, we see Jesus Christ 
in the middle of tremendous human need. The first one was hunger. The second one is a withered hand. In other words, for this particular person in this particular season of his life in a synagogue, there was a part of his life that just wasn't working. For him, it was his actual hand. For you, it might be something else. It might be your job. It might be your mind. It might be your relationships. But the case is true hundreds of years later. There's something that's not whole. And the story is bringing us back to this basic truth about God. Jesus finds himself in the midst of those things. He's not on the mountaintop. He's not in the, uh, on an Ivy League setting. He's not disconnected. He's right there in the middle of people's hunger. He's right there in the middle of a person's withered life and withered hand. He's right in the middle of the human situation where we find ourselves hungry or lacking wholeness. Now, some of you, maybe, maybe you resonate with this. Literally, maybe you're hungry right now. Maybe you have a withered hand. Or maybe these situations remind you of the broader conditions that we find ourselves in when we are weak, when we're broken, when we're tired. Maybe when you're non-fulfilled. Maybe some of you are burnt out, depressed. Maybe you feel like you can't keep going or you can't function. For this guy, it was his hand that wasn't working. For you, maybe it's your marriage, your singleness, your job, your future, your hopes, your dreams, your body in some other way. Maybe it's your mind and maybe you're dealing with anxiety. Whatever the case may be, those words hungry and withered are conditions that humans throughout history have been able to identify with when we hit walls and we hit our own human limitations. My question to you is, have you ever felt any of these ways? Have you ever felt hungry or withered, empty or tired? And again, what this passage is showing us is that Jesus, the only one who can make a human being whole, enters the chat. And he finds himself around people just like this, just like you. He finds himself in places just like this with people who need to be whole. What we also find is that wherever Jesus happens to be making people whole, we also hear the critic's voice. In this case, it's the Pharisees who we've, we've encountered over the last few chapters and are becoming familiar with. And I want to bring up the two things that they say in both of these stories. One is in Mark chapter 2, verse 24. As the disciples are eating through the fields of grain, the Pharisees were saying to Jesus, Look, why are your disciples doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And some of you, are, you're, as you're reading this, perhaps you have questions. What is the Sabbath? What's this thing about grains and fields of grain? Where can I find a field of grain? You might have a lot of questions. And I, I, we're going to get into the details, the beautiful details of the Sabbath in a few minutes. Right now, I'm going to take this jacket off. Santa Barbara, man. This 
hailing in the morning, and then it's hot in the afternoon. For now, I want to focus us in on one thing. Why are the Pharisees all up in arms? And it really starts from this original command around the Sabbath. We'll get into the beautiful parts of the Sabbath in a few minutes. Right now, all you need to know is the Sabbath was God's command. It was the sixth commandment in the Ten Commandments, commanding his people to stop working once a week, at the end of the week, to cease from work, because that's what God did. Now, that's a beautiful thing. We're going to get into some of that beauty in a few minutes. Right now, we have to understand that for people throughout the centuries who've been told, don't work on the Sabbath, the question then inevitably arises, well, what's work? And over the decades and over the centuries, uh, the Jewish community and the Pharisees and the scholars and the scribes and rabbis would endlessly articulate and wrestle through what constituted work. This was called a halakha. It was a, a, a manner of determining what is permissible and what is prohibited. And it got really out of hand, you can imagine. What constitutes work on the Sabbath? Well, there's writings that say, for example, that if you're thirsty, you can put down a bucket into a well and retrieve water. That does not constitute work. But to tie a knot around the bucket, that is work. So if you have an unknotted bucket, well, you're out of luck for that day. You're going to be thirsty. It got really stringent and crazy and, and far removed from the human condition. For example, if there was a huge disaster and the roof of your house caved in, rabbis would determine uh, later on throughout the later centuries that if somebody was alive under that rubble, you could pull back the, the, the rubble and save their lives. But if they were dead, you had to leave their bodies there until the next day. It's the Sabbath. And so when God says in his word, in Exodus chapter 20, thou shalt cease from working, what happened in the remaining centuries was all the ways that we try to define what he means. Rabbis used to call this fencing or putting a fence around God's commands. It was this idea that, gosh, if God says this, I want to be sure not to even get close to that, so I'm going to make these really intense laws like down here. So if God says don't work, well, I'm not even going to, you know, wake up in the morning. Then, then if I break my command, I won't be anywhere near to breaking God's command. So they, they fence the commands of God to make sure that they never break God's commandment. And in so doing, can sometimes miss the whole point of God's commands. And so they're asking, look, why are your disciples eating heads of grain in a field on the Sabbath? The funny thing is, is Deuteronomy 23 says specifically, hey, you can eat heads of grain in somebody else's field. <laughs> but they were so like, gosh, this is not, a, this is against protocol. This isn't the right protocol. And that is the complaint of the critic's voice. They're forgetting the point of protocol. They're forgetting the point of the law. They're forgetting the fact that the protocol exists for the betterment and the joy of the people that God has created in his own image. Remember this story some time ago, I think it was 2000, uh, 2018, when two Chicago police officers, John Connolly and Mike Modzaluski, were called to a scene of a, a very terrible shooting where not only a father and a mother were shot, but also a very young infant baby 
And protocol stated at the time that they were supposed to wait for an ambulance to come and get the baby. Officer Connolly and Officer Modaluski broke that protocol. And they decided in the moment, we're going to take this baby ourselves in our, in our interceptor to the hospital. And in doing so, they saved the baby's life. They understood that the protocol exists for the people. And in that moment, they made a judgment. We're going to save this, this baby's life. The Pharisees are forgetting that. They're forgetting that systems and institutions and rules and laws were created by God, not for the squelching of the human soul, but for thriving. And over the years, they've lost such sight of that, and they've been so disconnected from that, that the joy that they get comes not from God, but from the rules and the protocol themselves. This actually gets intensified in the next story. Jump with me to Mark chapter 3, verse 2 in the synagogue. It says that they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Do you see the intensifying jump here? In the first scene, they're actually doubting and complaining. They're like, hey, why are you doing that? In the next scene, they're waiting for him to do something right so that they can accuse him. This is cynicism, waiting for people to fail. And this still happens today. Whenever God's word becomes weaponized as a means to control people rather than pointing people to the giver of life, to the father as, as he is displayed through Jesus Christ, his son. When we forget that, Jesus would eventually tell the Pharisees, you, you look at this thing and you pour over it in detail because you think that it's going to give you life, but all of these words testify about me. You've missed the point. But make no mistake, Jesus does not miss the point. And he shows up in the human condition with all of its brokenness and all of its pain and all of its anxiety and all of its hunger and witheredness to remind people, I have come that you might have life and that you might have life more abundantly. And I hope that comes as good news to you, my brothers and sisters, because I have a feeling that some of you are overwhelmed and some of you need a break and some of you are lost and confused, and some of you are hurting, and some of you are just hanging on by the proverbial thread. And some of you need just an ounce of joy to sustain you. And yet you also hear a critic's voice in your head, and maybe it's, maybe it's a Pharisee, whatever that looks like for you in your life. Maybe it's a coworker, or maybe it's a family member, or maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your parents, or maybe it's you telling yourself, I, sh I should stop complaining. Now, I did this to myself. Maybe the voice is saying, don't be selfish. Think about others instead. Maybe another voice is saying, this is not the way we've done things before. Maybe another voice is saying, you just need to try harder. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Do better. You're a Christian after all. 
Maybe another voice is saying, well, how will that make you look? Or how will that make us look? Maybe another voice is saying, who are you to complain? First world problems. Other people have it harder. Why are you so sad? But none of these critical voices are evading the valid truth that you are sad, that you are hurting, that you do need a lifeline. And even though they don't take away from the validity of what we're going through, they are still the critic's voice and they are lies. Because brothers and sisters, those words that some of you are hearing are not the heart of God. God did not save you just so that he could drive you into the ground. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, I came that my people might have life and have it more abundantly. Now, will there be difficulties? Yes. Will there be challenges in life? Can I get an amen? Will there be grief and even suffering? Yes. And we will go through all of those things. God doesn't take us out of the suffering, but what he does promise to do is to sustain us through it all, to empower us and to even give us supernatural joy, even in the midst of tremendous sorrow. And that's why, my friends, God creates things like the Sabbath. Jesus would go on in chapter 3, verse 4 through 5 to say, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But the Pharisees, who lost sight of that a long time ago, were silent. And Jesus looked around them, at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Sabbath was created as a space for Christ to make people whole. Look at Mark chapter 2, verse 27, same thing. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I love that. I love that phraseology. If I could borrow that initial example, it was as if those Chicago police officers were saying this, pro, uh, the, this baby doesn't exist for the protocol. The protocol exists for the baby. And so Jesus is saying a similar thing. The Sabbath was not made for people. Uh, excuse me. The Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. This was a gift from God to humanity a way to carve out space in a chaotic and twisted world so that we would have a taste of the Most High, even in the midst of what we're living in. The point of this section of Scripture is that the Pharisees and the critics miss the heart of the Sabbath and Jesus' role in it, and he's bringing back their attention to both of those things. And so perhaps we should bring our attention back to both of those things as well. What is the Sabbath? Maybe this is the first time some of you have been actually hearing about it in a long time. What is the Sabbath? Well, it comes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 2 through 3, where God, before humans or anything ever existed, after he created the world and everything in it, on the seventh day, he decided to rest. 
And this is poignant for us because God institutes the Sabbath even before sin or evil enter the world, meaning it's not a reaction to sin. It's not a product of the fall. It's the product of God's good nature. Which, interestingly enough, so is work. God created both of these things to be good. We experience futility sometimes and frustration and hitting walls in our work because of the fall, but these things were both created as outlets for how God created us. But make no mistake, he rests after his work. And we see God doing this. And then we see in Exodus chapter 20, him calling people to do the same. Now, what is the Sabbath? Just in the most simple terms possible, it is a 24-hour period of time that people for centuries have used to practice ceasing from work. We'll get into the details of what that might look like. But for, uh, for the Jews, the traditional Sabbath started on Friday night and ended on sundown on Saturday. Sometimes uh, modern-day Christians will practice it on Sunday. Other people who work on the weekends might do it on Wednesday. Paul says in Romans 14, it doesn't matter what day you observe as long as it works for you and God. The idea here is that it is a carved out space of time where people practice something. And we see that in Exodus 20, after God pulls the Israelites out of bondage to slavery to Pharaoh, he immediately institutes a covenant with them. We call them the Ten Commandments. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul. And don't murder each other. And stop lying. Right in the middle of that, he says, and you shall rest, because that's what I did. And I want you to hear, not the religious legalism that we might attach to commands, but what this must have felt like to former slaves. I want you to rest on Saturday. Your old life, you were a human doing, but now I'm going to, I'm going to turn you back into a human being as I designed you. Now, rest, when God commands us to rest, he's not saying sit around, bored, tired. He's not referring to a, a mere day off or even a vacation. The word there is the Hebrew word menuah, which is the Hebrew word for rest. But it's maybe better translated as joyful repose or tranquility or even delight. And I want you to notice that rest is a part of God's activity, meaning after he did all that he did for six days, he carved out a seventh day just to delight in his creation. Sabbath is a container for God's delight. The mindfulness expert John Teasdale wrote of the difference between doing and being and how our minds work. That for some of us, resting is difficult because of our workaholic culture. We are always active. We're always trying to problem solve. We're always trying to finish something or start something or fix something. And so to physically stop working is already very difficult here in our culture and society. But even if you don't have anything to do, your mind still works. John Teasdale refers to this as the doing element of the mind. Our mind is wired to do. 
to accomplish something and to fix something and to have an end goal for something. And that works really well when you have a grocery list that you got to get through at Vaughn's. It works really well when you've got a, an essay that you need to turn in. It works really well when you need to buy a house or when you need to accomplish something. It works terribly when your mind is filled with anxiety over things that you can't solve. Teasdale would go on to say this is one of the primary reasons we find ourselves plummeting into anxiety disorders and even depression. We can't turn off the doing, and we can't transition into being. And I think this is extremely relevant to us today. Because perhaps some of you in this room, some of you at home watching, look at your life and you might say, like my wife once did, I, I don't have, like there's no work, there's no places to go, there's no real schedule, there's no things to do, no places to be. It feels like the activity got turned off then why do I feel more exhausted than ever? It feels like the activity has been turned off, like a forced Sabbath. And yet, why do I feel more tired than I've ever been? And the reason, perhaps, is that the demands have not ceased, the expectations on you have not ceased, but your ability to actually carry them out has been squashed and your mind is racing. I think of, this, the, I think of the Egyptians and the, the Israelites who when Moses kind of was creating a stir and Pharaoh was angry then said to the, to the Israelites, you know what, I'm gonna punish you. I need you, I'm gonna require that you make the same amount of bricks but I'm not gonna have my foreman bring to you the straw necessary for those bricks. So same demands but less support. That's how some of you feel today. Life has not changed. The demands and expectations have not changed. But your ability to, to be present to those demands has. And even though your body might not be moving, even though your schedule isn't the same, even though you don't feel like you're being very active, your mind is racing faster than it's ever been as you try to live in a world that doesn't be, seem to be very suited to you. What's going on here? Well, you're... You're trying to live in a, a very different manner of living. And for all intents and purposes, you feel hungry and withered doing it. It's as if God was preparing us for a moment like this when he said, I want you to rest just like I rested. And so he calls his people to carve out a, a day and a time. This is one of the most unique things about, about our faith, is that unlike so many world religions that will label physical things as being holy, temples, places, holy sites, trinkets, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob actually refers to a day itself as being holy. Jewish theologian Abraham Heschel notes, the Sabbaths are our great cathedrals. And time itself becomes a holy container for God's delight. 
It's as if he knew what he was doing. At the end of the 1700s and the beginning of the 1800s, during the French uh, Revolution, France decided that they didn't like the calendar as it was designed in its seven-day format. And so they turned it into 10 days, in part to get rid of any religious connotations in their uh, vow for secularism, but also to make uh, a little bit more efficiency. The idea went, well, if we had 10 days to work and longer days, we'll get more done and we'll have more productivity. That backfired extremely well as people not only were less productive than they were before, but plummeted into depression, anxiety, and suicide rates skyrocketed. They very quickly, I should say, not very quickly, in 10 years, they reversed what they had done to the calendar. It sounds like God knows what he's doing with time. And in that time, he doesn't just call us to seven days of work, but he says, I want you to stop and do what I do. To cease working, even if the working is just the amount of activity in your mind, to delight in creation. And then he invites us to do it as well. And on the heels of this story that we're watching, Jesus steps in to remind people what this is all about. In Mark chapter 2, verse 28, he doesn't just say the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, but he says the Son of Man, Jesus, is Lord even of the Sabbath. So he's not just showing up in, in our human condition. He's also making a statement about himself. He's saying, you remember what David did when he went through the temple and he gave them the prized food that only the priest was able to make? He did that because they were hungry. That was okay for King David. I am far more special than King David. In Mark chapter 12, he would actually say, I am the Lord of King David. Jesus is making a statement about himself, that he has all authority, but also that he is the one who is able to bring Sabbath rest to people who desperately need it. That he is the fulfillment of that completed picture of shalom, that Sabbath wholeness and rest. And as some people would say, Jesus is the true Sabbath rest of God who has left his throne and come into our mess and our brokenness to give what we were never able to work for by ourselves. And when he dies on the cross and he rises again from the dead, it is to release the captive on a supernatural and physical level to give life and life abundantly. But I also want to caution you against a very sinister and common trap when we refer to Jesus as our Sabbath. And it's that old tendency among Protestants and evangelicals, of removing the practice of the Sabbath for the abstract statement that Jesus is my Sabbath, which is just another excuse to live without limits. The truth is we still must practice what Jesus taught us to practice. Hebrews would tell us later in chapter 4, verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, just as God did from his. And so here's where I want to close. I want to talk to you about what it looks like to practice rest. In Exodus, 
Moses says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, your puppy, your kitty, your fish, or your sojourner who is within your gates. I added those last three. From the six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. What does this look like for us? There's been so much ink spilt on the Sabbath. I, and I know that some of us are so overwhelmed with our to-do list. I just want to make this as simple and as life-giving as I can for you. That the three things that we can draw from the Sabbath as we see it in the Bible, three things that I hope that you can take with you to the bank. One of them, obviously, is rest. On it, you shall not do any work. Now, what's work for you might not be work for somebody else. If you're an academic, you probably don't want to read books on your Sabbath. But for somebody else, they're like, books. On it, you shall not do any work. What does work look like for you? The second thing we see in a biblical Sabbath is worship. And from that, we could also add identity. In verse 11, it says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and then he rested. This is a practice that draws our attention to God in both worship, but also in a recalibration of our identity. And then the last one, the one that most people forget, is delight. It says in verse 11, Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy, meaning he put his favor on it. He put joy into it. And so here's what I want to challenge you with. Here's what I want to invite you into. I want to invite you before God this week to say, how can I carve a container for rest, worship, and delight this week? For you, maybe it's Saturday. For you, maybe it's Sunday. Maybe it's Monday or Wednesday. Maybe it's 24 hours. Maybe it's 12 hours. Maybe it's just the little bit of time that you have in a certain section of the week. Don't overthink it. Don't turn it into another law. Ask yourself, where is a container that God is providing for me this week that I can do regularly to, to put in three ingredients? And here's the three ingredients. How can I rest? What things in your week that are draining can you put on hold for just a, a short amount of time? Or maybe they're not draining. Maybe your work is really life-giving to you. Maybe it's fun, but you could see in, in the deepest part of your heart, it would be good for me to pull away from this. The second thing is worship. How can you consciously return your mind to Jesus at key points in that day? Even as Gabrielle walked us through at the beginning of our service that we're remembering the loss and the grief of this moment, but then again, we turn back in gratitude towards God this is, was a simple way of just remembering that God is present and working in our midst. How can you do that throughout a day like this? And then last is delight. Don't forget delight. What things bring life to your soul that you can just drop like a holy ingredient into that container that is your Sabbath? What can you take away? that's draining? What can you add that brings life? And how can you use that to consciously return your mind to Jesus at key points in the day? 
I'm going to invite the worship team up here as we respond to God in singing. Now, as you think about these three things, I want to, again, remind you, don't overthink this. Don't turn it into a stifling law. This was meant for joy and for rest and as a recalibrating practice to keep us from being pulled into a world that can't stop, whether it's through our activity, through our to-do lists, or just through our thought life. Allow this not to stifle you, but to protect you, to guide you along a pathway of rest and delight. And as I wrap this up, I had written down that I wanted to say to you, believe that God actually loves you this much, that he doesn't need you to be a human doing, but that he created you to be a human being, and you don't need to perform you don't need to get certain things done to find his favor that he already loves and blesses you in Christ. I wanted to say that to you. Believe that God actually loves you this much. And then I realized sometimes it's hard to believe that. Some of you don't believe that, even though you want to. And so I want to rephrase this. And I want to tell you, practice believing that God loves you this much. And this is why we practice the Sabbath, is to remember at least once in the week that even though my mind is racing, even though I have all of this stuff going on, I choose to practice believing that God actually loves me. We're going to do that now through singing. I hope you take the rest of this week to ponder what a container of rest, joy, and delight and worship looks like for you. Right now, let's practice believing that God loves us through singing. I love the idea that sometimes our heart needs our bodies to catch up, meaning that when we sing words that other people give us to sing, when we raise our hands as Paul commands people in Timothy, when we uh, bow before the Lord, when we open our hearts to God physically, sometimes the heart, which is stagnant, catches up to where the body already is. And so as we sing, let's lift our voices, let's lift our hands, let's come before the Lord in singing and gratitude and sing songs out of faith, expecting that he will stir our hearts to meet him right where we're at. Are you hungry? Are you withered? God is here with you. And he's pulling you ever closer to him. For some of you, maybe it's not through singing, maybe it's through prayer. We'll have prayer teams off by that white uh, truck over there in the corner. And if you need prayer in your life, go over there and just ask and have somebody else battle for you. But whatever you do, I want you to face Jesus Christ today, who loves you so much that he died on the cross and he rose again to break every chain and to deliver you from the bonds of the devil that you might taste of eternal life and he's right here waiting for you to respond that he might be able to pour out a blessing on you. Let's receive from it today in Jesus' name.